You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is taken from Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, or several months, I should say, then you know that we've been studying the book of Hebrews. But as we just mentioned, we're going to be taking a break from that for the next month. As was just announced, Pastor Christian is going to be teaching a short series for the rest of January. But today, we are spending our morning in the Gospel of Matthew, studying the baptism of our Lord Jesus. And the Gospel of Matthew is a very different uh, type of literature than the letter to the Hebrews, uh, which we've been studying. So we should just take, a, just take a moment here and stop and acclimate ourselves to it. Uh, author Christy Aniabwile put it like this. She said, the Gospels are the New Testament books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're primarily narrative and center on the Gospel of Jesus Christ as it was proclaimed during his earthly ministry. Gospel means good news, and so the good news of Christ's life, ministry, death, resurrection, and return dominates every book. And so that means everything in here. The narrative of Christ's words and his works is actually good news to us. Everything is good news. And so we treat this differently than a simple story. This isn't just a narrative, but it's also different than a letter. It's not just full of things that we have to do. Because as one author writes, a biblical narrative, in this case a gospel narrative, is not merely a record of what happened, but it is the divine interpretation of what happened. Which means Matthew is telling us what this means as he goes along. And so as we study this text this morning, we need to dig we have to dig until we see how this story is something, something that happened to Jesus that we read about in the story, that this is actually good news to us. We have to work until we see that. And now, um, this is the spot that I typically stop and I tell you what my main point is going to be for the rest of the sermon. I want to anchor you in it so that you know exactly what it's going to be. But just like New Year's are for new things, um, and we're going to see that this passage is full of new things, um, that unfortunately may have become just kind of familiar to us. Um, but, but in keeping with that theme of new things, I'd like to do a new thing today. And I'd like to not make one distinct point, but three. Yeah, I promise it won't be three times as long, but I just want three points. Um, because in the passage, all three persons of the Trinity are telling us something about the gospel and its implications, uh, the, the, the implications that this good news has upon our lives. And so we should briefly spend time with each of them. And so my points this morning are these. 
The baptism of the Son means that you can be truly clean. The descent of the Spirit means that you can faithfully abide. And the voice of the Father means that you can rest assured. Just gospel, meat, and potatoes to start our year. So first, number one, the baptism of the Son means that you can be truly clean. Now, it may feel like a step backwards, but the first thing that we need to do to try to understand our text is is we really have to understand what the baptism is that John is administering to Jesus. See, we have 2,000 years of separation between us and the events that this text is recording. So this may seem like just kind of a normal thing. Like, we understand what baptism is. But in the first century, this was very much a new thing. And so we have to try to receive it as they would have. See, our text today begins with the word then, which, would, which should perk our ears up to the, to the fact that something important happened just before it. In Matthew's gospel, chapters 1 and 2 are, are filled with the birth narratives. These are the stories that we uh, are reminded of at Christmas. In chapter 3, however, now 30 years have gone by. And we pick up the, the narrative of Jesus' life and ministry as an adult. And the first person that we're introduced to at the beginning of chapter 3 is John the Baptist. Now, in, in the Gospels, his, his name literally means John the one who immerses. John the baptizer. Right? It's, it's like saying Jacob the electrician. Or Debbie the teacher. Or Tina the firefighter. John's not denominationally affiliated. He just has a very particular job. His title is important, though, because he was doing something very new, very different. See, in the ancient world, washings uh, were not really an uncommon thing. In, in pagan culture, uh, pagans used various types of washings regularly before, as, as acts of ceremonial cleanliness in order to enter into sacred spaces. Uh, Jewish law, we know, required a lot of washings to remove various impurities. And by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees understood that many of these washings required that the, the entire person was immersed in the water. There have been a lot of uh, these pools kind of uncovered around the Temple Mount, dating back to the early first century, which would have been around the time that Jesus was ministering. And so it showed that this was a prevalent practice in Jesus' day. But in these instances, and this is very important, in these instances, an individual was cleaning themselves. John's baptism, however, was very distinct for a few reasons. One of which, though, was that unlike the Jewish washings, John administered baptism to others. It wasn't a way to clean yourself, but it was a way to be made clean, passive. Secondly, this was a one-time action. These weren't cleansing that you had to do over and over again. This was a one-time action requiring repentance and offering the forgiveness of sins. It wasn't simply a way to get ceremonially clean again and again and again. It required people to turn away from their sins and toward the kingdom of God. And so as we're introduced to John in verses 1 through 12 in chapter 3, this is what he's doing. He's calling people to repentance. He's saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's baptizing them in the Jordan. And so John has a very important role here. He's doing a new thing and really changing the way that the first century uh, people would have understood cleansing. 
But at the end of the, the previous passage, John tells us that his ministry and his baptism, they're just shadows of what is to come. Right? In verse 11, he writes, uh, or I guess he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And it's then, our text tells us, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. But if this is what John is doing, if, he's, if, he's, if, if his baptism is symbolizing a, a repentance, a turning away from something, a turning toward God's kingdom, it's for the forgiveness of sins, is, if this is what his baptism is, then I think we should reasonably ask, why did Jesus come to be baptized at all? See, as we're working to understand the baptism that Jesus himself received from John, we should, we should not overlook the location. The fourth gospel account written by John the disciple, not John the Baptist, um, different John, but John the disciple, he tells us specifically that John was baptizing in Bethany across the Jordan. See, back in the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 3, the nation of Israel was finally preparing to enter the promised land that God was giving to them. And to do so, they had to cross over the Jordan River. Joshua 3 reads, The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. They were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. All Israel is finally coming out of the wilderness and into the abundance God had promised to them. But to do so, they first had to pass through the Jordan. And so the fact that John is baptizing across the Jordan on the other side is making a point. John is saying that the people need a new start. They need a new entrance into the promised land. And this is where Jesus comes to him to be baptized. See, we, we all have a sense of uncleanliness, a sense of our individual unworthiness to enter into God's promised blessing. Even if you're not a Christian with us this morning, you realize that you have problems. You realize that you don't even measure up to the standards that you would give for yourself. You realize that something needs to be done in order to make things right, to make you clean. And what the washings were pointing to is that we need to be clean before we can come to God. Even the pagans sensed this. They needed some sort of cleanliness. And when Jesus comes to John to be baptized, John himself senses this, right? In verse 14, he says, no, 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 no. This needs to be the other way around. This is backwards. John had just finished saying, I'm not even worthy to watch this guy's shoes, let alone give him a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is backwards. See, John, John knows that the roles are reversed here. John knows that he's the one that needs to be made clean, not Jesus. But this is exactly why Jesus came. He came to be put in our place. He came to be made like us so that we could be made like him. 
The Apostle Peter highlights this when he says, uh, baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, Peter pretty famously misunderstood washing during Jesus' earthly ministry. In John chapter 13, when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, Jesus told them that he didn't, if he didn't wash them, they, they didn't have any part in him. He's basically saying, like, no, no, this has to happen. I have to wash you if you're going to be clean. But Peter misunderstands this, and he says, well, if you've got to wash me, then don't just wash my feet. Wash the whole thing. Give me a bath. Give me a shower, something. See, Peter was still thinking of cleansing in a ceremonial way. But after the resurrection, Peter realizes it's not about physical cleansing. It doesn't matter if your life is perfectly curated for the onlooking eyes of the world. What matters is that you've been cleaned by the Son. If by faith that you've been baptized with Jesus in his death, where he was put in your place, then you'll certainly be raised with him through his resurrection, where we are placed in his. Friends, you can be truly clean. Do away with the washings today. Receive the cleansing of Christ. That's point number one. Point number two, the descent of the Spirit means you can faithfully abide. It's uh, resolution season, and so many of us have spent the, the last week making resolutions that we're, we're just promising to keep this year. This is going to be the year that I'm going to keep my resolutions, right? We're all saying that, but we all know the truth. And I think if we're honest, we could admit that we're just not particularly good at remaining resolved. We're, we're great at getting going, but we have difficulty when it comes to keeping going. As Jesus put it, he says, he says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Look at verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized immediately... He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. What's going on here? Um, one commentator said that when the heavens were opened here, the language is describing it like, like there's a gap or a cleft or a tear made in what can be seen in order that you can look beyond it to see what is unseen. And out of this tear, out of the unseen, the Spirit of God is said to descend like a dove and come to rest on Jesus. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was said to come upon people, to empower them for the work that God had called them to, that God had given them. Maybe they were given a task and God, uh, the Spirit comes upon them in order to empower them for that task. For instance, in the Old Testament book of Numbers, when uh, Balaam was hired to speak words of cursing against God's people, it says the Spirit of God came upon him. And the text goes on to show that he could do, from that point forward, he could do nothing but bless them. He was empowered by God's Spirit to accomplish God's will. And that's like what we're seeing here with Jesus. But again, there's an important difference. The Spirit is said not to come upon Jesus, but to rest upon him. This is abiding. This is not just empowerment for a time, but this is the Spirit staying. 
See, back in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is said to be conceived by the Spirit in Mary's womb. And so there's never been a day that Jesus was without the Spirit of God. We need to be really clear about that. And so that means we need to be careful here. It's not as if Jesus is becoming the Son of God in this moment. Instead, God, through the gospel writer Matthew, is telling us something with this. He's interpreting this for us. God is saying, I'm doing something new. This isn't just another someone in the long line of someones throughout the hall of history. He's saying, this is the one upon whom my spirit rests. This is the one Isaiah 61 says has come to set the captives free. And the captives are then free to live in God's will. The Apostle Paul put it like this. He says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. See, when we've been liberated, we've been liberated to, like Jesus, fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Right? Verse 15 simply says that Jesus came to be baptized, quote, to fulfill all righteousness. Simply put, it was just the Father's will that Jesus be baptized. Theologian J.I. Packer said it like this. He said, the Son appears in the Gospels not as an independent divine person, but as a dependent one who thinks and acts only and wholly as the Father directs. Jesus' whole life was for the purpose of accomplishing the will of the Father, to live perfectly in his will. And as Christians, we've been liberated to now do the same, to walk in the will of God. But what does that even mean, right? We say that all the time, but what does that even mean? What does it mean to live in God's will? At face value, it means to just do what God requires of you. But, but if that's all that it is to you, just a series of performing correct actions, then like your resolutions, you're going to give up on it by February. Hear me, if the point of your obedience is just, this, is just so that you can say that you were obedient, then I can say pretty confidently that you're not going to be able to keep it up. So what does it mean to stay in God's will? See, many of us generally think about it uh, like remaining in one place for a really long time. It, like, like your resolutions, it's just simply self-control. It's perseverance. And it's not less than that, but it's certainly far more. Right? We think about it uh, like staying in a room. We're kind of cut off from all the good things that are outside the room. We'd really like to go out there, but we have to stay in the room because Jesus promises that one day he's going to come to the room and get us and take us somewhere wonderful. But to live in God's will is less like being in a room and more like being on a hike. To be in God's will is like traveling on a path. There's a trajectory. You're going somewhere. Like on a hike, you're, you're traveling with others. You're enjoying the joys of the journey as you go, but you're, you're, you're doing it with the surpassing glory of the destination in mind. That's why you went to begin with. See, we, we try with all of our might. Each of us, we try to abide. That's what our resolutions are symbols of. 
our effort to stay, our efforts to strive. But often, like your reading plan, by the time you hit the genealogies, you're ready to quit. See, often all of our great effort remind us, all our great effort is reminding us of is our great inability. But one of the amazing things that the gospel offers to those who lay hold of it by faith is power. And I, and I don't mean political might. And I don't mean physical strength. I mean the power to remain faithful. The power to stay in God's will. The power to abide with God as he abides with you. Listen, if you've believed in Jesus Christ as God's beloved child, you have the spirit resting upon you. When you've been baptized by Christ with the Spirit, the Spirit abides in you just as he does in Jesus. He is your power. But listen, just because you have power, that doesn't mean abiding is always easy. Immediately after this text, after the baptism, if you kept reading, the the Spirit sends Jesus out into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. Walking in the will of the Father is often not easy. And I don't think I have to teach this to you. I think you know that. But like Jesus, we have the power of the Spirit resting upon us, enabling us to walk faithfully. When life is difficult, when temptation comes, when calamity strikes, the Holy Spirit is with you. He's resting upon you. He's abiding with you, giving you the power to keep going. And so friends, hear me. Keep going. In 2024, press in. Press into spiritual disciplines like Bible reading and prayer and the Christian community. Commit to this place. Love one another. Press into loving one another as Christ has loved you. Even when it costs you everything. Keep going. Go together, help God helping you by his spirit faithfully abide. That's point number two. Point number three, the voice of the Father means that you can rest assured. In, um, in the movie The Matrix, yep, in the movie The Matrix, uh, just one of my favorites, in the movie The Matrix, um, after the main character, Neo, has had his eyes opened to the reality around him and then is being taught what the Matrix is, he finds that when he's in the Matrix, he looks different than when he's in the real world. And Morpheus explains to him, he says, it's what we call residual self-image. It's the mental projection of your electronic self. And um, what Morpheus is saying is that in the Matrix you're presented the way that you view yourself. How Neil mentally views himself, what he believes most fundamentally about himself is the person that he becomes when he enters the matrix, which really seems profound, but isn't this just our normal life? We, we all present our residual self-image out to the world. But the reality is, though, none of us form that image on our own. Each of us, whether we believe it or not, have created a self that is curated to garner the praise of those around us. We present to the world the version of ourselves that we expect people to love. The one we hope people will applaud. The one that we hope people will revere. And now maybe you think, no, 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 I'm different. 
I, I, I'm indifferent to the voices of others. You may, maybe you believe you're a trend-setting pioneer and you're immune to the acclaim and the praise of, of the culture. But you're wrong. We all know too well that we place our confidence in the praise of the people around us. And we all know too well that to do that is like building your house on the sand. All it takes is for the tide to roll in and the foundation is gone. But what if there was a rock that you could build on? Something that could provide you true assurance for your life. Look at verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. See, virtually all commentators agree that here in verse 17, when God says, This is my beloved Son, he's quoting Psalm 2, verse 7. And as he continues, and he says, with whom I am well pleased, he's quoting Isaiah 42, verse 1. And depending how, on how each of the gospel writers presents this instance in Jesus' life, there might be some allusions to some other things going on. And I think there's actually a lot of them here in, gospel, in the gospel of Matthew, because he's primarily writing to a Jewish audience, and so he's done a lot here. But basically, everyone agrees that these two texts are being quoted over Jesus in this moment. And that's exactly what makes this so amazing because, again, this is something new. See, Psalm 2, if you remember from a few weeks ago in our study of Hebrews, uh, Psalm 2 is, is a messianic psalm. It's a royal psalm. It describes God's coming king who's, who's going to have authority over all of the nations and the entire earth is going to be put under his feet. He would be a conquering figure. But Isaiah 42, on the other hand, is one of the four servant songs in Isaiah. These songs are scattered throughout the back half of Isaiah, and they describe God's servant who will carry out God's justice through suffering. Not exactly our version of a, of a conquering figure. In fact, we read a portion of one of these songs in our Confession of Sin this morning in Isaiah 53. Right? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. And all of this, all of it is in the background of this statement by God. Psalm 2 and the servant songs. But for the first time ever, as God himself declares it, these two figures, the conquering king and the suffering servant, are combined into the same person as they're spoken over Jesus. See, God is saying, you've been looking for a Messiah You've been looking for a Messiah that you thought was the one that you needed, but this is my Messiah. My king has come to put all the earth under his feet through suffering. As theologian Jeremy Treat put it, he said, the forgiveness of the kingdom comes at the cost of the king. Jesus reigns by saving and he saves by giving his life. This event in Jesus' life, his baptism is telling us that Jesus is God's true Messiah and he's come to establish his reign from the throne of a cross. See, in his earthly life, the Lord Jesus meticulously carried out the will of the Father. It's the whole reason he came, to accomplish God's will. In fact, in John 17, the night before his crucifixion, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished all the work that you gave me to do. Jesus was given a job and he carried it out perfectly. No word spoken or person healed was an accident. 
and the Spirit rested upon him. He meticulously carried out God's will in his life because of it. And Isaiah says, the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Because as the Apostle Peter says, God chose Jesus before the foundations of the world, before it was even created to suffer in our place. This was always the plan. Jesus is the clean one who was plunged into the waters of our purification so that we could be made clean in him. Christ was the ark entering the waters of the Jordan before the people so that they could cross over into God's promised blessing on dry ground. He's the one upon whom the Spirit rested so that we could have the Spirit rest upon us by faith. The Son of God became like us and was punished on our behalf so that by faith in his finished work, we can rest assured that we are sons of God in him. So that we could be his children. So that we could hear God's heavenly voice ringing out over us. This is my child in whom I am well pleased. Imagine what your life would be like if you believed that statement. If you really laid hold of that statement. If you took the assurance of that statement into your heart. What would your life be like? You'd live your life like Jesus. You'd have resolve. You'd press on regardless of the circumstances. If we really believed this. One pastor in New York City, he put it like this. He said, if you consider the end of John's gospel, when the praises of man were no more and the people cried, crucify him, and wanted to exchange his life for that of Barabbas, Jesus could quietly embrace the cross because his life never depended upon the praise of others. He had perfectly the praise and love of his father and because he was so sure of it, he didn't need the acclaim of the world. His life was built on the rock. He had no interest in moving to the sandy seashore. And this is the kind of assurance available to us. See, God knows you truly. He, he knows the whole you. He knows, he knows the, the dirt, the muck, the scars, everything that you hope that people don't find out about you. God knows truly. And yet the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ reminds you that even though he knows you truly, he loves you completely. In fact, nothing can separate you from Our Father...